0: All right, so if John Cougar Mellencamp's Small Town was written about my guest today on the program, it might go something like this. Well, I was born in a small town, and I live in a small town. Had a synth-pop band in a small town. Oh, those small communities. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast check this out.
1: It's another night, Cuban
0: The Victims, a band which featured my guest today on the program, Steve Harm. Let me tell you a little bit about The Victims and Steve Harm. Well, that small town I mentioned is La Crosse, Wisconsin. It's not a small, small town, but at about 50,000 people, it's relatively cozy enough. But when you're Steve Harm and it's 1983 or so, and you've got the only synth pop band around it probably seemed a lot smaller than it was. Now, you have to remember, when the victims were an active proposition, hard rock and hair metal were running the show. So a few dudes dressed like new romantics or goths, playing the kind of new wave that fell somewhere between OMD and the cars. Well, they probably weren't an easy sell, but they did get out there and play a lot of gigs. And before too long, they had a devoted fan base and they seemed poised to break and break big. The trio was composed of Steve and his brother Jeff on drums and Jeff Reinhart's on guitar. And their album Silent Dreams on the strength of catchy numbers like Let Her Go and the one you just heard, Whispering Walls. Well, that album should have been huge. And it almost was. There was label interest. There was a night out drinking with The Cure in Chicago. There was a little blast of daylight that could have been burst through. But it just didn't happen. Why? Well, I'll let Steve tell you that, but I'll just say this. The digital remastering of the album all these years later should finally get it into the hands of everyone who should have had it in the first place. This is one of those stories where the band members are finished with the unfinished business they started all those years ago. But the postscript is Silent Dreams, and the story, well, it really does end there. But it's an interesting tale of how we got from the 80s to 2021, And Steve is here to fill in the details and tell us what happened in between. Steve's a great guy, and this is one of those stories in the lore of musical history about what could have been, what actually was, and why that's all totally okay. Let's have a chat with Steve Harm of The Victims, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Name actually harm or is it something else
2: oh no it's it's actually harm h-a-r-m
0: because that's a great punk rock name that's a name that like a british guy would have spent like months trying to figure out like i'm gonna call myself you know dave fury and you actually are steve harm
2: yeah but you, you know what you get in the 80s when when you've got a, a punk rock name like that is all the punk rockers accusing you of making up a name so yeah. So w- where you might you could get some kind of respect for it because that's your actual name. No, you just get people questioning you. No, that that can't be your real name.
0: <laughs> it's and a that, great punk name. I mean, was there ever? By the way, did punk rock hit you at all, or did that was that not your wheelhouse?
2: Um, it wasn't really my wheelhouse, but I mean, I I, I used to get um, when I in the '80s the way we'd get music is order away for it. You know, I'd I'd pick up a um, um, I lived in a little town of 2,000 people in, uh, in Western Wisconsin. So occasionally we'd get up to Minneapolis and there was a great bookstore there that had a lot of music magazines, uh, and a lot of music, uh, uh papers from, uh, overseas. I'd always pick up like a Melody Maker, or New Music Express, bring it back to our little town. All my friends would think I was ridiculous. And then I would send checks to all these different, uh, Uh, You know record distribution people to get uh, to get new records, and a lot of them were compilations. So you get you know a cross section of punk and and new wave stuff from the time period. So it wasn't wasn't my wheelhouse, but I certainly didn't uh, didn't shut it off when it came on.
0: But you must have been very aware of British music, Um, you know, punk notwithstanding. You must have been very up on what was happening in terms of like the British new wave bands that were coming
2: through. I was because the, the the great thing, and I mean the, the treasure really in the, in like a new music express or a melody maker was uh, um, I would immediately go to the reviews and I'd I'd start reading reviews because uh, you know no internet so you're not hearing stuff before you buy it and uh, the um, the the reviews would uh, tell you everything you needed to know if that was something you wanted to listen to so it was. Uh, i guess they were almost catalogs to me
0: yeah and i think that in many ways that's that's just you doing your homework that's what we used to have to do i mean you and i are, are around the same age and you know i would if i liked to band like you mentioned minneapolis if i liked to band on twin tone or on oh. sst i would go to the record store and i'd find all the albums that were on that label and that's what i would buy
2: yep or oftentimes if, if it was a, a familiar record store where they knew you um, boy, do I wish that kind of thing still existed. Um, sometimes you'd come in, and the, uh, uh, the, the the person who was behind the counter would say, "Hey, there's a new record here that's uh, you know produced by fill in the name of the producer," and I, I'm pretty sure you'd like it because I know you like all the stuff that he's worked on. And, uh, that was always a great way to to get new music and kind of an indication. Like you said, if it was on Twin Tone, you kind of knew what it was going to sound like, or at least you knew. The caliber that it was going to be. Um, same thing for all the other other labels, whether it was 4AD or, or you know, anything. Wax tracks, especially for me.
0: Yeah, those those were those were like brands, you know. So you you almost felt you could trust them because they had never steered you wrong, um,
2: and they, they had to be because you couldn't hear that stuff before you bought it. So they knew that they had to create something that was so. Um, Um, consistent that you didn't have any fear of dropping your your money on an lp
0: when the pixies or throwing muses signed to 4ad that was sort of like that was like a a seismic controversial thing because a they were american and b they sounded nothing like the brand that 4ad had, had had so far um i mean that's how that's how deeply entrenched in in um sound a lot of these labels were
2: yeah, I, it seems like all those labels had maybe one or two bands that just threw everyone. But, uh, you know, thank goodness they did. They exposed a lot of people who were just stuck on that brand and being able to listen to some 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 other sounds.
0: Yeah, because Twin Tone put out like Soul Asylum and then they put out the Replacements and they put out this Jonathan Richmond record, which was like, you know, just him with an acoustic guitar. I think it was Rockin' and Romance. Yeah. It's such a great, such a great album, but it's like, did not sound like The Replacements.
2: yeah. Yeah, you certainly know. not. Um,
0: you grew up in Wisconsin and you you were saying the closest big city was Minneapolis?
2: Yeah, we were kind of equidistant between uh, Madison and Minneapolis. So I could go to Madison for um to see shows um, but there wasn't a huge scene there for local music. But Minneapolis was completely different. That was was tons of venues and and uh, you know the 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 music scene was just an explosion of, of different sounds.
0: One of the things that I, I'm really fascinated about, about your band is that you guys, to me, you were, you were fully formed. I mean, it was all there. It was a very fully formed sound considering your age, considering the geography of where you were. I'm sure there weren't a lot of bands that were coming out of your town or ones that sounded like you. Um, And that could be, something to do with the fact that you did do your homework and you listened and you were inspired and, and all the ways you were inspired and that's how it came out. Um, but when you and this shows this is interesting, Steve, because our show is really about looking forward and um, but because of of the nature of, of the album, we have to look back a bit. I think it's important to but but tell me a little bit about that. I mean, to my ears, you guys were in, in, out of the box, ready to go. Um, when you listen to it now, are you surprised with how non-skeletal you guys sounded? I mean, you guys really were pretty fleshed out.
2: Am I surprised? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I guess we we always took it really seriously, and and you know the, those albums that uh, that I that I mailed away for, or that the record store person handed to me, um, and and I don't think a lot of times people get this out of digital downloads anymore. Um, those LPs were like. Solid gold to me. I mean, you know, we'd listen to them nonstop, day and night, and uh, you know, treasure them like like they were impossible to ever replace. And I think you you absorb a lot of that, and you you know, you notice when uh, songs aren't just verse chorus verse chorus. There's a bridge, and there's a solo, and there's there's an intro, and there's you know, some of the stuff that a lot of smaller bands when they're starting out and writing songs they forget. Um, because a lot of I own a venue. We'll, we'll probably end up getting to that, but um I get a lot of young bands in here, and I know what they do. Is they they find a riff, and then they just pulverize it into a song, you know, over and over and over again. And sometimes they forget that there are a lot of intricacies to it. And I used to love music that that uh, built. uh You know, there was there was more and more in the song as it went along. By the time it got to the end, it was. It was all the parts coming together. I mean, I, I still like movies like that. I like books like that, and I definitely like songs like that. And I, I think that was kind of how we tried to, to write the stuff so that it, um, you know, you just felt like you were being pulled in deeper and deeper, instead of just like you said, it, it being a skeleton where if you could walk away at any point because there was nothing there.
0: When I say surprise, what I really mean is like I'm a writer, and when I go back and I look at what I was writing in 1986, mm-hmm. I go. Oh, I see what you were trying to do, lad. <laughs> like it's it's very, it's very sweet what you were after. I get it, but like I wouldn't want anyone to see it. Whereas your band, it's it's the opposite. Like it really feels to me like you guys, um, there wasn't anything, like I said, skeletal about what you were doing. It was very assured and very confident and very rich and textured, considering your age. And you know, sometimes we go back and we look at stuff and we go. You know, good effort, but but this is not one of those cases. And I think that's pretty rare, actually, when you think
2: about it. well I, I, I mean I really appreciate those compliments. I, I my you know my brother and I obviously grew up together. He was a drummer, and I, I think that we you know we probably wrote together really well. We probably just without knowing it because not having worked in bands where we didn't have a relative, we probably didn't realize how well we synced. And uh, I think maybe that was part of it we're just thinking along the same brainwaves.
0: What were some of those albums that were handed to you that were, that made such an impression? Like if you can just list a quick procession, like what were the ones that were, that were so important?
2: Um, Some of the early uh, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen, um, really early Cure stuff. Um, Boy, you know, and and this was a little bit into the band already, but when Black Celebration came out, changed my life. I, I realized that sequencers weren't just for happy thoughts. Um, you know, they could you could make vents and and also Depeche Mode was always great about sometimes having slightly skeletal sounding songs until you really listened and there was ten thousand layers. And uh, although they could always craft a good pop song, um, there was there was so much depth to it that it you could just it had listenability repeatedly. Um, And I guess that's kind of, kind of what we try to do too.
0: Even something as spare as that song, Somebody, you know, that, that, that ballad is, is quite rich.
2: Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. That's on the rare occasion that they, they pull that out live. That's, that's always got me crying in the crowd.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. That song I had, you know, I was at a tennis club in the Bay area and I was, I think I was like 13 or 12 or 13 and the girl behind the front desk was like, you know, seventeen, very cool, kind of a mod, and she yeah. said to me, "Hey, come here." And she put, she put her headphones from her Walkman on, on me, and it was the Cutter by Echo and the Bunnyman. and nothing was the same after that. That was such an important moment for me, because I was like. Was that- I mean, I was just like, th- how is this even possible that this could be this good? And hardly anyone knows about
2: it? We started out as a two piece, and we we somehow had the the guts to go around and play different uh, local venues and local festivals. and there was there were two people in town, the only two, um, that were like super new wave uh, a, a couple named Penny and Barry, and Penny had the Rod Stewart blonde hair and always wore um, super tight satin pants and uh, some type of probably a tank top with like uh, black and white stripes on it. I mean, they were they were right off, um, you know, a stereotypical if you were making an 80s movie, they were right there. But they actually gave us some of the first stuff that we listened to from, from Europe uh, because they thought that that uh, maybe we could even. Start to sound like some of that and all we were at the time was me with the Rhodes piano and my brother with the drum kit and two vocal mics and way too m- much guts for what we should be doing at that point way too, way, taking way too many chances playing some pretty god awful of st- songs in front of people but um that, that that really had a big influence too so i guess you know add that to the record the person behind the record store and the magazines moments just yeah when you think about the headphones going on your head uh, and hearing the echo and the bunny simple stuff like that can be life-altering,
0: right? And you know what's amazing is that I'll bet you that she never ever thought about it when she put the headphones on my head. I'll bet you that she never ever remembered even doing that ever again. But for me, it may, it literally made my life go in a different direction. Yeah! Wow. The effect that that ripple—that sort of ripple effect—I mean, her simply doing that was like, you know, almost like answering a phone or. Or uh, you know, coughing. It was just nothing. It was just a gesture. She just a quick, simple share of something she was digging, and I would, I would guarantee she never, ever remembered even doing that ever again. But for me, it's like I'm still, I'm talking about it now. You know, forty years later, and it's like um, it makes you really think about the the influence that you can have on people when you don't even realize it.
2: Do you think she thought that you in particular would be moved by that, or she was just she liked it so much she had to share it with someone?
0: That's a great question. I mean, I think I almost feel that it was probably the second because um, I was a kid in the Bay Area. I was listening to metal. <laughs> you know, I was listening to like I was listening to hard rock. And I mean, of course, I love the police and and I loved new waves. Um, but and I, and I really was but I really was sort of listening to like pop music. I wasn't I wasn't really um, going to I hadn't really started my music exploration of 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 the cooler stuff yet. Um, I don't know. It's it's a it's a great question. It, it'd be fun to catch up with her and uh, and ask her. I'm sure she would go. I'm sorry. Who are you again? <laughs> <Who> are you? <laughs> but um, I. By the way, I was kind of curious because, and this and you you tell me. But you're living in a small town in Wisconsin. You're listening to music that does play around with gender a little bit. You know, men were wearing eyeliner and the guys were very pretty. Uh, but there was there was masculinity. But it was sort of a, a really interesting balance between masculinity and, and femininity because I think a lot of that new romantic stuff was sort of playing around with that. Were Was there ever a moment where you felt brave enough in your fashion choices, but then you felt like maybe you were, I don't know if you were ever bullied or if people said things to you or people gave you a sort of um, you know egress to be who you were?
2: Um, I, I don't think I ever dressed extreme enough to um to merit getting beat up but the the, the couple that i told you about Barry and penny they were they were beat up once on the street um just for looking like that but um uh, i i kind of stuck to like uh boy what how do i describe it maybe like a bellboy shirt where it buttoned over to the left and um i had a lot of uh like rising sun tank tops and uh lightning bolt tank tops and things like that i wasn't i wasn't dressing like adam Ant so anything like that but the, the music itself you know you you are driving around in a car and you're cranking bronski beat and sometimes people are wondering yeah right uh you know because it's certainly not what the people driving around you in pickup trucks are listening to um but i, I don't want you to, to think either that i was an elitist about about european stuff i i too was listening to that metal that you were listening to i mean i've got lots of Aussie albums from back then um <laughs> and Starfighters, and even some Aerosmith, and, um, I, 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 and, and, you know, maybe that helped contribute to the, the songs being really fleshed out, too, because we did listen to a lot of types of stuff. Um, yeah, all, I mean, I listened to stuff that, like, like I said, Bronsky beat the fresh Mode that would make, uh, make the girls wonder about me a little bit, and I listened to Ozzy Osbourne, which would make my parents totally pissed off.
0: You know, for me also, like an album like Pyromania was, I mean, (laughs) you know, I'm in seventh or eighth grade when that comes out. And that thing was just infectious. And so to me, I saw a through line and maybe it was production, but I saw a through line between Pyromania and The Cars. I mean, to me, it was sort of like they were both sonically incredibly nuanced and textured and
2: big. Yeah, I think we were we were kind of graced with some amazing uh, producers back then, and, and uh, yeah, like you said, a wide wide mix. But Pyromania, I, I'm sure I I nearly destroyed my car stereo speakers with that. Yeah, um, but and that was the production on that was just oh that that was it, it might have been it was either that one or what was the one before Pyromania High and Dry. Um, his, okay, so Hysteria was after Pyromania?
0: Yeah, Hysteria was after.
2: We, uh, um, those guys in the studio did a lot of reverse drum reverbs, so that the drums would go... Yeah. You know, it'd be a bill to it. And uh, my brother played electronic drums, and he figured out a way to record the backward, um, the backward drum hit trick um, and then be able to trigger it and then he had a gate set up so that as soon as the he actually hit the snare it would stop the reverse uh reverb buildup. Oh. so we could do live we could play um which i mean you know it doesn't sound like much but man it blew the <laughs> blew the local bands minds when we were watching that stuff they couldn't figure out how we were doing it
0: were your parents supportive of what you guys were doing or, or were they a little concerned
2: Uh, I think a mix of both, but, but way more supportive, probably, probably 80, 20, um, supportive, not, and then not, uh, and then not supportive. They, they, you know, we had our stuff set up in the, in their house. And for a while we'd take over the garage and play just incredibly loud where we get, um, the small town that we lived in, we actually lived outside the town, um, across from the town on a hill by a lake and we'd get noise complaints from the town, which was about a mile away. So, you know, my, my parents were letting us rehearse at just ridiculous volumes, but they had to, because we um, uh, we did everything by phone because there was no internet, We you know, regarding booking and things like that, uh, we had one phone number, and again, there was no cell phones either, so one phone number, the home phone, and they had to pretend that the, the home phone was zero-budget records our little record company. And, uh, you know, here they are in their, their 50s um, trying to answer like they're answering for a record company. And it's uh, uh, a radio station guy from Pittsburgh, or it's uh, uh, a venue from Florida. And uh, they, they, they suffered a lot at our request. Please, please don't
1: touch my heart.
0: did the victims decide to call it a day and and how difficult of a decision was that for you because the band the band broke up in 87
2: no it was it was probably closer to 89 that we did our last show Um, because I think we recorded uh, goodbye uh, which is on the, the which has been added to the record um in about in in 87 or maybe 88 um and how we broke up it um well it, it really has to do with the amount of work that it took at the time to to try to be a professional band anywhere but let alone in the middle of nowhere and set up tours by phone And deal with hundreds of college radio stations stations by phone, and um, you know the the mailing of thousands of demo tapes, and you know because there was no digital way to transfer that stuff, and a lot of that was on me, um, just because as we got older, you know, everybody everybody in the two guys in the band wanted to have lives, so they had real jobs, and my whole job was band, band, band. So I would. I'm kind of a workaholic and I'd spend 10, 15, maybe 20 hours a day, seven days a week, sending out letters, station IDs, um, records, press kits, being on the phone, trying to set up tours. And then we would, and then there'd be writing music and then we carried full production when we traveled. Um, so we had full sound and lights and so our our shows were just ridiculous we had to get to the venue at like noon and maybe we'd be ready to go by eight o'clock at night um and that a lot of that was because the technology wasn't fully formed so we were using midi when midi was new and it had a lot of idiosyncrasies let's say that would uh, really take a lot of time to to work through at some venues and we um I, i can't remember the exact date that we had just decided that we'd probably take a couple months off and everybody would do their own thing. And then we'd get back together and get going again. And, uh, during that couple months off, uh, I, I think we all discovered life that we were, had been totally unable to partake in for the previous five, six, seven years. Um, and I know it sounds weird, but we talked again. But we never talked about the band. We just kind of let it fade off into the distance. And literally, I mean, I you know, I talk to my brother all the time. I talk to Jim, our guitarist, once in a while. Um, we we don't we haven't talked about the band until these guys from Good Take up in Minneapolis said, "Hey, you know, this record, let's uh, we should put this back out again."
0: Well, that does sound weird because it. <laughs> because i mean the band was such a big part of your life it was such an elaborate thing you were doing like you're talking about with you know what just the the rig and the setup and the uh, it was a herculean kind of process and to not to suddenly not be talking about it in many ways it's very natural right it's sort of like it's just organically it just sort of the fruit fell off the tree and that was it um but it, but it is weird, Steve, that you didn't talk about it. I mean, is it when you think about why you didn't talk about it? Is it because it just felt like you you didn't want to bring it up, or it just it just never came up naturally?
2: It it didn't come up naturally, and and you know I don't know if I, I think the three of us probably had different ideas on which way to go with it, and we had left. Left it so comfortably that I think maybe we didn't want to be uncomfortable again. Um, and I, I yet, like you said, after a Herculean effort like that, it it, it does seem um, kind of weird to just walk away from it. But it was a Herculean effort for quite a while, and uh, it, it, I mean, it, I, I can't even explain how, how life sucking it was when you when you've got to do all that by yourself, and and some of that. I blame on me because I, I turned down managers because I thought I could do things better because look at how well everything was going, why would I need a manager? We turned down a sale of one of our songs to Chrysalis Records because I was convinced that if the song was good enough for them to buy for one of their artists then that, that we were good enough to sign, you know, not thinking, obviously I've got 200 songs in me ready to go, you know? just. Sometimes you make those mistakes.
0: What was filling up your life at that point? So the band stopped and you guys weren't talking mm-hmm. about it. And what, what did you do? In other words, like you seem like a guy who has a tremendous amount of energy and drive and focus. So clearly that energy that drives and that focus had to be going somewhere else. Where, where, where did you put it?
2: Um to make some money i took a job with a a local uh, sound company that did um everything from concert sound to i i specifically spent a lot of time um making some pretty good money but uh (laughs) this will make it sound like i really should have went back to the band i was doing things like putting up sound systems in fairgrounds for for uh fairground type events that included everything from big auctions to demolition derbies. So I was climbing up on poles, hanging these World War II speakers like you'd see at the beginning of MASH. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the, the big round PA speakers. We'd string those for miles throughout a town for some town's big parade. and Or I'd, I'd, I'd walk through the, the rafters of some pigeon crap covered uh, barn at a fairground so that they could have some speakers in there for announcements and uh i i i got so far away from music that um i don't know maybe that maybe that's what made it easier because the only thing that involves music with that was the occasionally we do we actually did garth brooks on a hay wagon um at the Shawnee county fair in wisconsin i mean like a literal you know like 20 by 10 foot wooden hole behind a tractor hay wagon so we did do some interesting things.
0: Was there ever a moment, and and I'm asking selfishly because for me, I had a, a a similar story to you, where I was a DJ at a at a high school radio station, and I'd gained notoriety for being, you know, just sort of um, a young mouthy DJ on a on a high school radio station. We had a pretty good wattage, and we were competing with with major market stations, and. You know, I had a, a an early formed personality, and wow, right. And there was a lot of attention. But when I went to college, I ran the the radio station there, and then I just flipped off the mic, um, and started writing. And I did that very consciously because I really had sort of, I'd reached a point where I'd, I wasn't sure how to be that character, the young mouthy character, as a guy who was getting older. So there was a real struggle with that. Um, but I thought about yeah. it every single day like and there wasn't a day that went by where i didn't think i should be behind the mic i should be behind the mic and i didn't do it i didn't go back behind the mic i stopped from 24 25 till i was about 45. so i literally took 20 years off and i thought about it every single day so i'm wondering when you were up there stringing lights or doing the garth brooks thing was there ever a part of you that was sort of like someone should be doing this for me i should be playing
2: music (laughs)
0: Or, or did you also not talk about it with yourself as well?
2: I think there was a lot of the latter there that I, I you know, it was, I was, and looking back on it, I'm, I'm not sure how I was able to, but I, I was, I was able to just kind of put it behind me. Um, you, you, you pose a question that I, I never even really, I've never thought about that hard. I, I guess I was, I was able to distract myself enough to. And put it behind me to the point where it just didn't make sense to do it again.
0: Yeah, I I totally get it because I the reason why I didn't come back earlier is because it didn't make sense to me. I didn't know the 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 path to doing that wasn't clear to me. You know, like mm-hmm. sort of like the character that I was going to be or the way I was going to sound, um, and and I wasn't going to do it if if I couldn't figure out what that was going to be. And so it was very conscious. As, but but again, I, I never stopped thinking about it. it was so and and by the way, <laughs> I like your way better because my way was really painful. I mean, it literally when I thought about it, it wasn't a fun thing to be thinking about because I wanted in so bad. It's almost like being injured and being on the sidelines and you know you could throw the ball. And, and you can't you can't get in the game because you're just something's just not right. Um, and so but what a relief to for me to finally come back to it so for you coming full circle this album coming out the the sort of the the rediscovery of the victims and also the discovery for a lot of people how does that feel and and how are the conversations with yourself around it now
2: um it's, it's pretty nice to see people appreciating it i i uh over the past few years i have done some searching i found it on pirate bay at one point and there was there was some comments there and then this guy the whole reason that this happened was some guy who runs a a video site called obscure 80s bands or something um had posted it i was just curious to see if we existed in the digital world anywhere he posted it on youtube and um then i reposted it on the facebook site of the, the venue that i run here just for for grins, but the the comments that had been on the um, the original YouTube post from people that didn't didn't know me at all uh, all said really nice things, and I, that that made me feel pretty good because it's it's so hard to think back and, and try to remember you know what was it was it really good or did it just feel good and uh, um, there were a lot of great comments and that that was really nice, but I didn't I never thought it would reach the point where um, somebody would want to remaster it and re-release it. That just sounds sounded ridiculous to me. And and here it here it is out and seems like people like it. So that's that's fantastic. That's you, you try to write songs that, uh, that that get stuck in people's heads and uh, that's what what we always try to do is get a good solid melody and build around it and build the song and um, you know hopefully when they shut it off. They still still it.
0: what are the conversations with your brother like now but now are you guys talking about the band
2: um a little bit he lives out in arizona so he's a long ways away i don't i don't see him very much don't, don't talk to him much and he was very taken aback when i said that someone wanted to do this um and uh but he said you know if, if, if they really think that there's a, a market for it why not um he was he was really happy with the remastering he's got a very good stereo system and uh got a hold of me right away and said he thought it sounded great and uh you know that as far as talk of ever getting together and playing or anything like that there's that i think logistically that would be impossible and none of us ever nobody wants to remember three old guys on stage trying to sound like they sounded 35 years ago although i guess i can cite a lot of bands that uh That that do that still in stadiums but uh,
1: in
0: the archives are are there songs that weren't released is there more material that could that could come out
2: um as far as recorded there's probably about 10 more tracks that were recorded um the same time that uh june to september was recorded which was just recorded on a cassette tape at a live show by our, our sound man who just decided he would Record the set so he could get a little more in tune with um, the effects and stuff that he was using during the show, and um, luckily that tape never got destroyed. And uh, so there's about there's probably about ten more recorded tracks, yeah.
0: And are you are you playing music at all? Are you do you like write songs? Do you like what's your own daily practice?
2: I haven't written a song since then. Except for about six years ago, I had a pretty bad breakup, and of course, that's how thats usually how good music happens, is you get really emotional about something. Um, and uh, there's a there's a great band from here called the Sweat Boys. It's a sort of a '80s throwback electronic band, and um, uh, they—the uh, guy who who is the, the Lead man in the band has has a bunch of keyboards in the studio, and I just asked him if I could go over there one day and play around. And ended up writing a song, and uh, we didn't um, we didn't get a chance to properly record it, but we're actually talking about it just for for the heck of it. But other than that, I don't I don't play regularly at all. I'm usually pretty busy with the venue, and I all my my old keyboards um, I've lent out to local bands. So they're still getting used, but uh, not by me. Tell me
0: a little bit about Warehouse Alliance.
2: Um, we've got a, well, sh- shortly after the, the victims, um, in fact, it was in 1991. Uh, I guess I'll go back a year before that. Uh, 1990, when I was working for that that uh, sound company, we would have, that, that work was sort of consistent, but it was um, more summer oriented. Sometimes in, the, in this, the winter and spring, uh, there wouldn't be a lot of work. And I'd, I'd hang out in downtown La Crosse at uh, a friend of mine had a tanning salon. Um, and admittedly, it was a great place to meet girls. So that's why I would hang out there and um, um, be able to hang out with friends too. And they were in the basement of this building that was built in 1888, a, a great portion of downtown La Crosse um, well, actually, maybe a 10 block area is buildings from the 1880s through the 1900s. We've managed to save um, several blocks of old buildings. And uh, anyway, these guys were in the basement of this building. that uh, had been at that point had been pretty much abandoned. The upstairs was the first floor was empty. The second floor was empty. The third floor was empty. And they had keys. And I asked if I could explore one day. And I went upstairs to the third floor. And it was a big open room, um, about uh, 3,500 square feet and had high ceilings and uh, I could imagine the stage in there. Um, I thought, geez, we could could put on shows here, not me, um, with other bands. And uh, we ended up, those guys and myself ended up opening sort of a clandestine dance venue um instead of a a live music venue we didn't we didn't have permits or anything it was just ridiculous and we were open from 10 o'clock at night till four o'clock in the morning when the bar time here 2 a.m and uh we figured we'd just get the people after 2 a.m we'd want to continue dancing and instead mostly what we got was the people who were too drunk to go home so that was a that was a lot of hassle but um uh there were five of us and and we decided to stop doing it and then um uh, one of the other guys and myself decided we would reopen it, but we'd do it right with permits. We'd get everything um, fixed up. We talked to the landlords. We talked to the landlords into a real low rent as long as we were able to um, uh, get the place all um, up to code, which was ridiculous because it had been abandoned for years and, and we didn't know what we were getting into. But we agreed to this agreement and then we took all the, we, we had pretty good turnouts because we're no places for kids to dance in town. And we, we, we went for a all ages, um, uh, uh, type of, uh, environment. We put all the money back into the place, kept fixing it up. Uh, eventually they were going to sell it. We found, I mean, there's a long story about how we kept them from selling it and some of the, the, um, uh, uh guerrilla things that we did to, um, keep them from selling it so we could try to raise the money ourselves. But, um, but I'll make that long story a lot shorter and say that, uh, uh, the partner left after a while because it was getting getting kind of financially trepidatious. And I, I ran the venue for 21 years, ran up some pretty good debts because when you're running all ages venue with no alcohol, uh, it's very hard to keep all the bills paid. Um, but I did what I could eventually got too far under. And uh, in 2013, I had to file reorganization bankruptcy, not to get rid of the debts, but just to, to get it organized, to repay it. And, some, um, and it looked like I was actually going to lose the, the venue and the, the kids in town were going to have nowhere to go to, to see live music. And because um, at that point we'd started doing bands actually for most of that 20 years. And some parents came to me and asked if they could uh, talk with me sometime And we got together and they, they suggested forming a nonprofit and trying to run the, the venue as a nonprofit. And um, all I had to do was, Assume all of the debt myself. Uh, the venue would then be a nonprofit, and they'd pay me a little bit of rent for the space, and I would chip away at the massive debt. Didn't it? From a from a financial point of view, my accountant was like, no, 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 no. And from my point of view, it was that's the way to save a place where kids can go to uh, see live music and touring bands and have their own bands play, and no drugs, no alcohol, and it we could see after 20 years how much it had changed the town and changed kids lives. Um, and so we've been doing it as a nonprofit for the past eight years, I guess. And so that's, it's, uh, we're at 30 years right now. And it's, uh, it's a, it's a pretty magnificent thing because when you've been running that long as all ages, you literally get parents coming in who came here when they were 15, who have. uh, um, like 10 year old 12 year old kids or they came here when they were 18 they've got 15 year old kids they're they're literally bringing their own kids in um to say hi and so their own kids are enjoying live music like they were you know when i started it i thought we're going to have a venue where bands are going to be happy to play because we're going to treat them treat them really well And and I hear from bands, there are a lot of places where they go, and you know, the, the venue is super nice to them, maybe sometimes over nice to them, but what we are is very friendly to them, and we're also all trying to do a job. We're trying to put on a show that night to make a bunch of kids happy. So we 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 um, let them know that when they come in, that we're all on the same team, and so we put on a great show. And then you know, for these young kids, that get to play with touring bands, it takes so much burden off of them um, from having to find those gigs because we've got them available. And I've never charged bands to play or made young kids sell tickets. I've made them put up posters, but they do that anyway because they want to get people to their shows, but I've never been a a pay to play kind of guy. And that that just infuriates me having been in a band. Um, I mean, if if the band can draw, the band can draw, but don't make them sell tickets to their grandma Uh, Because that doesn't prove that they can draw anybody. That just proves that they can sell some tickets. And they're not learning anything that way. And we we try to make it a school. And the the super cool thing, this this is one of my favorite things, is I'll hear from promoters in other cities that they just had local band A from lacrosse, Um, whoever it was. And they'll tell me that they could tell right away they were from lacrosse because they knew how to behave in a venue they knew exactly what to do. They know what they knew what to ask, um, and that's that's really great that we can get them get them trained so that they can you know try to be a professional band.
0: Do you like being in that role? Do you feel there's a kind of there is a fatherly? I'm not sure if you have kids of your own, but there this is a very fatherly kind of role. Um, it's very cool.
2: I, I don't have kids of my own, and and when people ask about that, I always tell them it's because I have a couple hundred kids every weekend. Right. And and it's you know it's a small enough town where, um, as well as, as you know helping those kids with um, um, their bands, I, I know the kids so well that when Jeff is breaking up with Lisa, I know what's going to happen there, so I'll I'll talk to Jeff. So, I mean, I know, you know, and that's how everybody, we've got people who have worked here for 15 years and 10 years. And, and by work, I mean volunteer because we're all volunteers. Um, and we know we get to know the kids so well that we, we sometimes work psychiatrists or psychologists, you know, job advisors. I, I think I've written more letters of recommendation than anybody on the planet because every one of those kids, when they're going for their first job, who they don't know any adults that they communicate with normally. So they ask if we'll write them a letter or I'll write them a letter. But the fatherly thing about the bands, yeah, that's that's kind of what I feel like. And and I, sometimes bands will look at me like, oh, God, the old geezer's got an opinion again. And uh, <laughs> some of the smart ones will listen. And you know what, some of the, the regional bands and even the national bands, um occasionally they'll call with you know we'll get we've got a uh, a record contract offer can you help look it over that kind of thing you know so it's it's i'm not playing anymore but i'm i'm more involved in music than i was then it seems like
0: it's really cool and i think when Jeff and lisa break up if either of them are in bands Jeff and lisa are both going to write some great songs
2: i hope so <laughs> That's how to get it out
0: <laughs> that's how you do it. I'm just really glad the victims are out there. I think people need to hear this and i'm i'm uh, I'm excited for our audience to to check it out. It was totally new to me and uh and it sounded it sounded uh familiar and and outstanding so congratulations and I'm glad this is finally out
2: well i I, I really appreciate appreciate that very much and yeah I hope your, your listeners like it
0: It's a great album and uh and I appreciate your
2: time man. Yeah, I was it was quite
0: go. Steve Harm of The Victims, great guy, great band, great album. Go pick it up, victimsog.bandcamp.com. There's some cool bundles you can get when you buy the album, and a lot of that cool stuff is selling out. So go there, get it, and enjoy it. Now, if you want to support the Warehouse Alliance, that's 30 years the Warehouse Alliance has of keeping kids off the street and into the music. Uh, Go to warehouserocks.com or WH. Rocks.com or WarehouseAlliance.org. Great cause, great venue. Let's keep it open. You can visit me at alexgreenonline.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Embers editor or on Instagram at EmbersPodcast or just email me, editor, at com. Visit Bombshell Radio at BombshellRadio.com. And don't forget, Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available On all podcast platforms, go to the one that you use, subscribe, leave us a rating, maybe a nice comment, tell all your friends, you know, maybe have a party and have a huge announcement where you clink a glass and say, Do you guys know about Stereo Embers, the podcast? That's why I've brought you all here. Enjoy the cake, enjoy the drinks, and enjoy the podcast. (laughs) That's a lot of trouble to uh, go through for us. We appreciate that. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Whispering Walls from the victim's album Silent Dreams, now available in the world, and the world is better for it. Thank you, as always, for listening to our show week in and week out. Here are the victims, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio.